many people have saved some money which they want to invest for the future. Some people are happy investing their money in a robo-advisor. A robo-advisor programmatically puts money into long-term investments. Other people want a more personal approach involving a certified financial planner, or CFP. A CFP is a human who allocates capital for an individual based off of that individual's preferences, such as how much risk do you want, or when do you want to retire. A certified financial planner spends time and effort researching the options for a client. If the client only has a small amount of money, say $15,000, it's not worth it for the CFP to spend that much time on the account. As a result, there is a type of client who has saved a little bit of money, but is not saved enough to be an important client for a CFP. Facet Wealth is a software company that makes software for certified financial planners to work more effectively with their client accounts. Facet Wealth has in-house certified financial planners who work with this software to manage these client accounts. In addition, Facet Wealth buys client accounts from independent CFPs who have small accounts which they do not have time to manage. This is an innovative way to aggregate users onto the platform. And if all of this sounds really confusing and strange and foreign, and you're wondering why does this matter to me as a software engineer, this is a pretty interesting episode. It has a lot to do with human-computer interaction and the identification of a market opportunity that many other people probably would not have seen unless they really studied this market. Gorkum Sevinch is the CTO at Facet Wealth, and he joins the show to describe the business and the software architecture of the company. We touched on many different areas, from human-computer interaction to the future of investing. I really am fascinated by this company just because it's got such a strange model of coming to market and the kind of software that it builds, and you'll see what I'm talking about if you listen to the episode. I want to mention that we recently launched a new podcast dedicated entirely to covering fintech, and that podcast is Fintech Daily. Fintech Daily is about payments and cryptocurrencies, trading, the intersection between finance and technology. You can find it on fintechdaily.co or on Apple and Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're looking for other hosts who want to participate. If you're interested in hosting for Fintech Daily, you can send us an email, host at fintechdaily.co. Gorkum Savinch, you are the CTO at Facet Wealth. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the reach out and we're looking forward to chatting. Definitely. Facet Wealth is technology for financial advisors, financial planners, and we will get into why that's an interesting and a difficult technological problem. Let's start with the top-level business use case. What is a financial advisor? That's a great question. So financial advisor is basically a blanket term that covers different types of advisors, ranging from customer service representatives at like a financial institution through an investment only advisor to all, all the way to full financial life planner. Most commonly, it refers to what we call the certified financial planner, the CFPs, which is a certification that is awarded by the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards. The CSP, the CFP designation comes after extensive exams in the areas of financial planning, taxes, insurance, estate planning, and retirement. So it really is a mark that says this person really knows what they're talking about when it comes to your estate planning, your retirement, your, your, uh, your holistic financial planning. So yesterday I got a phone call from somebody at my bank who already holds all my money and makes money off of it, and they were trying to sell me on more services that I should buy from the bank. And I was appalled at this. My relationship with my bank is deeply conflicted because they keep trying to upsell me on stuff. In the past, I've tried to talk to 
personal financial planners in a couple of different contexts. I think I had somebody who was working with me when I had a Schwab account. They were always trying to sell me stupid stuff that I didn't care about. When I was, uh, and then I had somebody that was sort of like a, almost like a financial therapist that you know I would go and talk to every three months, and he would have some printouts, and he's like, "Here's what you're gonna do, and here's how your money is working," and all of these different people that I've talked to, they have such an unscientific, disreputable approach, and it's just based on low sample sizes, you know, unscientific assumptions, small time horizons. Speaking personally, I have no trust in the 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 world of financial advisors, and I believe this is why millennials, such as myself, have gone in the direction of the robo-advisor, where we can say, okay, we've got an algorithm that's completely powering this thing. So throughout this conversation, I think we're going to be talking about the, the trade-offs between the robo-advisor, completely algorithmic side of things, versus the human side of things versus the thing that's in the middle where you have a human aided by a computer. Can you help me draw out the trade-offs along this spectrum of options for financial planning for finance? Yes. So that's actually, you, you, bring, a, you bring up a really good point. And this is part of the reason why we started this company. I'm one of the co-founders here as well. And the, the financial advice world is really vast. And it really depends on what does the client need, right? What type of advice do I need? If I'm making investments and I need advice on what sort of investments I want to make, and it's only about the investments with the mixing of stocks and bonds and mutual funds, that's a whole different thing uh, with balancing your portfolio and diversifying your portfolio, et cetera, than the financial planning only service, which is about talking about how do you prepare for co- your your kids for college? How do you pay off debt? What's your retirement planning? And and also investment management. So that's more the full financial life planning is what we call it. And in that realm, it's actually quite interesting too because traditionally you get you said your you you talked about your your financial psychiatrist basically right or financial therapist so these when you're getting these reports sometimes you're getting a lot of information that is not really easily understandable if you're getting 140 page reports with a lot of graphs on it that talk about here's the thing here are the things that you should do but it's just advice and there's no there's no follow through and there's no making sure that you understand what is being told to you. That's where we saw actually a lot of value in helping explain to people, helping understand what are your financial goals? What are you trying to get to? And how are you going to get there? Here's the plan. Here's the, we spent a lot of time on actually defining what that facet standard is for the quality financial advice that we'll be giving through the CFPs. And we spent a lot of time on the actual UI UX perspective of things that actually touches the tech side quite a bit because how do you actually communicate that information over to the client in the sense that they actually understand it and it's not information overload? Does that make sense? It does. So these different financial advisors in different contexts, they have different strategies. So you've got the robo-advisors who are trying to make this algorithmic You've got the financial therapist who is trying to make it as opaque and seemingly uh, professional and, oh, you couldn't do this. I need to do this for you and take 3% or whatever. And then you've got something in the middle like facet wealth. Okay, what is facet wealth? What are you trying to build? That's a great question. So facet wealth is a full service financial planning and wealth management firm with specific focus on what I was talking about with this full financial life planning. It's about helping people realize their financial goals. We saw that CFPs are really, really highly valued people who give really sound advice to people on how to plan for their financial goals. They generally work with based on assets under management, right? So let's say you have $500,000 in assets under management. They, the, most advisors now charge an annual fee that's a percentage of those assets and they manage, uh, they manage clients that way. Now, what we saw there is that 
CFPs are only available to those who are who have assets under management above a certain limit, right? Above above the certain threshold. So that leaves the majority of U.S. households not available to actually use this service and talk to a human who can give you sound financial advice. On the other side of things, you have the robo-advisors that you were talking about. These are the the mint, these are the betterments of the world, which are great, right? They have really, really, really cool machine learning AI algorithms that do really, really complex uh, calculations to give people advice. And people generally, let's call them what we call the mass affluent people who are less than a million in assets under management, they only have this, these robo-advisors as an option. They're affordable and they're convenient. So if we go back to the minimum most advisors have, you can see that you know most the vast majority cannot have the option to talk to a CFP because the CFPs won't take them on because they're, above, they're below the, the threshold. And the other option is robo-advisors, which are good at providing advice based on hard data. So let's say, for example, you're calculating which credit card to pay off first how aggressively you want to pay it off. But they cannot provide the full financial planning a dedicated CFP can. For instance, I'll give you an example. We had we had a client who had divorce papers, and in the divorce papers, there was a certain clause that would actually impact payoff of a debt that was getting paid through the divorce agreement. Something like that that has context that has that is buried in some documentation somewhere is really hard for a robot advisor to catch. That's when you have humans actually catching certain clauses, certain cases, and really giving this holistic financial advice. Right. So your point is that the context in which you can plan your long-term financial goals and risk allocation and so on can be very subtle and it can depend on all these different variables it would be very nice if we could if we had some amazing like smart contract programming interface where we could plug in all the different variables in our lives and have some risk factors that get you know evaluated because of that and and maybe someday we we will have that but today, we basically have to rely on the fuzzy but often well-performing work of a human. And the human sorts through the documents and talks to you and does their best to understand your goals. And it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. But it's pretty much the best that we have for evaluating subtle situations. I mean, this is the same thing you have in healthcare today. You go to a doctor, compared to how a doctor is going to treat you in 10 or 20 years, what we have today is like bloodletting. It's so crude. It's not based in in sort of data-driven science. It's more based on, well, you know, this this worked for like the last patient I had that had a broken leg, so uh, we're going to do it for you. Hopefully it works. You know, the medical journal says it might work, but it's not really data-driven. And we kind of have the same thing in financial planning because things are just too complicated. Yes. Actually, that's a really good point that you're bringing up because... My background is actually coming from healthcare. I saw that. And some of that is actually goes into what you're talking about is precision medicine, right? Making data-driven decisions based off of the data that you're provided, which is not only what is in the patient's medical record, but also the other factors that you have to you have to take in place. And actually, I would say financial planning world is actually even be more behind than healthcare. Healthcare, at least we have, uh, at least the data is digitized. In financial planning, you still have paper. This is 2018. We're almost in 2019. We're talking about paper. So one of the things that we had to do, one of the first things that we did is actually taking a more design-driven approach a design thinking driven approach. How do we actually capture as much data as possible with a consistent way? Because we have one of the things we haven't touched on yet is how are we how we're using machine learning algorithms to help us help the financial planner to work more efficiently and consistent quality, consistent advice, the facet way of advice that we're giving. But 
your machine learning, your AI is as only as good as the data that you get. So we, from the beginning, took a holistic look of what is the data that we're getting automatically uh, from accounts, from reti- retirement accounts or bank accounts, et cetera, et cetera. But what is the data that we're getting that is an input from our clients that actually helps us drive what their holistic financial profile is and drive what are the, the attainable financial goals are, what are the, the attainable versus the what, where they want to be and how can we help them get there. Right. This is Facet Wealth, from what I can tell, seems like a business that's in some ways similar to... So there are these businesses like uh, Atrium, for example, that legal company that Justin Kahn is building, or uh, Palantir. Uh, there's a number of other companies in in this category that maybe you can call them human-computer interaction companies, where a lot of the innovation is around the human-computer interaction. It's around design. It's around better ways of interfacing with your your mobile your mobile app like what is the is the mobile app that we're using to view like our picture of our financial health that's a a very difficult question i mean we had smartphones before the iphone the iphone was really about the the interface you know it was sort of about these the the way that you put the organization together that produces the phone these are not things where we necessarily need some massive breakthrough in the algorithm it's more about how are we approaching the problem and how is our our team going about it and what is our product design strategy? You are reading my mind, but because this is exactly the approach that we're taking with how we are thinking about our product. Our product is a service. It's a service that is a that is a human first service. The tech is an enabler to the service, right? The the certified financial planners, the CFPs are part of our team. They are here, they are, it's actually a remote workforce, so some of them are in our office, some of them are remotely working, but they are consistently using our tech to deliver this service. So that's part of it. Part of it is understanding how does a CFP work? What are the specific items that do, that they do? What are the things that the calculations that they would normally do that any software that they would normally use out there wouldn't do and they would have to do in Excel, right? How do we automate some of those? What's part of it? Part of it is the full UI UX perspective of the financial planner because we we want our financial planners to be very, you know, very efficient as well. Part of it is also how do we present our data to the, the the client's data back to them. And these goals, the, these plans that we make that are based on the goals, your retirement plan, your college plan, how do we actually communicate that? That going back to what I was talking about before, it's not information overload. Because it's absolutely worthless when you give somebody a 140-page report that has all the pretty graphs that you can generate, I can do that all in D3, no problem, right? That's not the that's not the point. The point is, what is the clean UI UX that enables me to quote to get the point across, communicate the point, and help people understand? These are my goals. These are the things that I need to do. Here's where I am. Here, here's where I'm going to where I'm actually planned to be if I follow my advice in this time frame. That we, we have spent a lot of time on that. We have spent a lot of time with our beta clients on that as well, getting a lot of input from the clients, from our initial pool of clients, because we the engineers and designers are not going to be the best people to make those decisions, right? I mean, they given the given the input from clients, given the input from CFPs, we'll build something that's, uh, I, of course, I'm biased, but it's quite awesome. You have certified financial planners that work directly with Facet Wealth. You have people who come to Facet Wealth and are looking for help with their financial planning. Is it fair to call you a two-sided marketplace that connects people who have money that need to be managed with certified financial planners? Yes and no at the same time. The certified financial planners are part of the FACET team. 
in facet we diff we differ in the sense that every client gets a dedicated certified financial planner they have access to this dedicated cfb who then in turn gets supported by the platform the tech side right and it's our company's dna to really get the best of the best of these CS cfps these cfps are actually nationwide they're not only based in our offices in Baltimore, Maryland. They're nationwide, and they connect through the with uh, they connect with their clients through video conferencing or on phone, depending on what the client prefers. But we're not really limited to talent in a specific region. So we're getting the best CFPs in the in the country, and we are also getting clients. Now, clients we are getting organically, but there's also another way we're getting clients, which is actually we we work with other advisors out there who have it's it's actually a normal thing in the financial planner planning world to do these partial book sales. So partial book sales are essentially, let's say you are a financial planner in in Washington, DC. You have 200 clients. Out of those 200 clients, you have 30 or 40 of them are actually below your threshold in the sense that you either have to have them or there, there are many reasons for why you would have those clients. But these are people that you're not essentially making much of because these people, these CFPs are working based off of a percentage of assets under management. So we are actually buying those books of business from other financial advisory firms. And that is... It's very, very interesting because we're enabling those advisors to focus more on the higher net worth individuals, which makes sense from their business perspective that with with their percentage model of one person, they may act and the time that they would spend on them, they may actually make the same as much as three people that they would have to do. Well, those three people are the same for us because in our perspective, we're a flat fee based service. We have different levels of service that we provide, but they are, it's a flat fee. So we have eight service levels. They range from $500 a year to $5,000 a year. So it really, it really depends on what the client needs rather than the percentage. And as we buy these, these books of business, we have a whole process in which we convert them into clients. Of course, it's up to them to join the Facet family or not. But generally, what it what it means is that they're paying less and they're getting a pretty high touch service. This is really subtle, and it's one of the most interesting kind of market expansion go to market strategies that I've covered on the show. Just in in terms of its subtlety, it's subtle, but the market is giant. So if I understand correctly. All of these certified financial planners, the financial therapist, where you go to their office and you sit down with them for like an hour and they have all these printouts and they're like, here's, you know, we've been putting this into oil and this into index funds. And, and you're like, cool. These financial therapists, I think when I had one, I had like $30,000 or something like I, they were managing like $30,000, which is, you know, that's a considerable amount of money. Like I think my dad had told me to go you know, go to see my financial planner. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went and I sat down and he's like, okay, so you have $30,000. That's some money, but it's not, you know, we can't do a whole lot with that. I mean, we can, we can do some, but you know, it's not going to be that interesting. I don't know if that can, if that's a small or a large book of business, but I, I would assume well, that's, that's kind of on the small side, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So for this financial therapist, he doesn't want to spend his time managing a $30,000 account. Like that's not interesting. It's He's not going to make much money. He can't do much for me. And so what you do, what Facet Wealth does is you go to financial planners like this guy, this financial therapist that I had, and you say, hey, look, we'll take that off your hands. We'll take all your $30,000 accounts. We'll pay you some fixed amount of money. And then so you get them onto your platform. And you go out and you do that for every financial therapist in the world, and you can get economies of scale. You get all those $30,000 accounts, and then you have in-house certified financial planners who can kind of probably manage these things, maybe on an individual basis, maybe at scale. Maybe you just give them like a sort of Uberized kind of platform where they can, you know, 
the really the the problem is the you know my financial therapist i you know i'm going to his office i'm sitting down with him I'm like he's doing he's printing you know he's got to spend time printing the paper he's taking all this time if you give this this kind of certified financial planner an uberized platform or like it's like tinder you know he's just like swipe you know, swipe right swipe left you know okay manage this person's finances not problematic it's very quick this kind of person can get like 10x improvement in productivity and that's basically what you're doing. You're closing the loop there so that these $30,000 accounts can be managed at scale. They can be managed on a, on a on an individualized basis, and they can be managed much more efficiently, probably for lower cost. Exactly. You got it perfectly right. I wouldn't say we're t- Tinder for financial planning, but that's a, that's a pretty good analogy. Financial planners, in a traditional way, if, if somebody's running their own shop, they're doing business development, getting new clients. There are the industry averages about 75 clients that they are generally managing. And they are they have, let's just be honest, they have very inefficient workflows. Because they are using there are a lot of tools out there that they're using. There are a lot of there's a lot of software that they can use. There some of them are proprietary, some are like portfolio modeling applications, even Salesforce offers some they're in their financial cloud. So they use, but there's no one tool that they can use for everything. So they end up using multiple software systems. They end up having to hire IT guys that can integrate these systems if they can be integrated. And then they do all this printing and, and trying to communicate, as you said, the, the therapy. In our side, we are optimizing the workflow, right? The, the tools, the tech that we build actually integrates all with, really well with all the systems that we have, but that's not it. The data that we get from the clients is really what's driving everything else. We have machine learning AI algorithms that enable our financial planners. Let me give you an example. Let's say, let's say they, they go, the client goes through our intake process and they are put inputting all their information and the algor- one of our algorithms may say this person is a good fit for a Roth IRA because it has gone through all our decision trees, essentially. And based on previous data that we have, uh, it can suggest that this person may be a good fit for a Roth IRA. That's These are like mental checklists that a CFP would go through normally. There's, there's a lot of logic that they actually get to learn as part of this financial planning certification process and the continued education that they do. What we are doing is really helping automate parts of that so that they can focus on building the relationship with the client, understanding the financial goals, using the system, but also it is a human that is making the decisions. So it's a it's this the ML artificial intelligence only enables them to work more efficiently. And to go back to the example that I was giving, the industry average is 75 clients. We're shooting for 250 per our CFPs. But the CFPs also are not doing business development. They are not dealing with IT people. They're not doing many of the other relationship building ones. But a lot of CFPs actually travel to all their customers, right? So they're they're traveling all around the U.S., whereas our workforce is, uh, is remote. So we avoid a lot of the inefficiencies in this financial planning world so that we get to the, we get to the meat, we get to the beef, right? What is the beef? The beef is what are your financial goals? What is our advice? How could we help you get there? Okay, so let's say I'm one of the certified financial planners that you have in-house at Facet Wealth. I wake up in the morning, so I, I'm working remotely, like I'm working at home? Exactly. Okay, so I, so, so I get to work remotely, I get to work at home, so I wake up in the morning, I sit down on my computer, and I'm going to start managing some accounts. What is my day like? What is the software that you're giving to them because they're basically coming from a world of spreadsheets, uh, spreadsheets and t- just terrible cluttered. So what are your certified financial planners doing throughout their day? And what is the software that you're building for them? And how, how are your product teams interfacing with them? Tell me about the software and the user experience for your certified financial planners. Cause these are essentially like, well, I guess this is one side of your quote customer base. Yes. So that's a great question. So, First of all, our product team, our engineers, and a good portion of our CFPs who are actually driving the, uh, helping drive the product, they're in the same office. 
they're in the same office and we're building things together. So building the relationships there, getting the right people in who are thinking differently is key. I mean, from our design engineering perspective, uh, we don't have anybody here who actually has financial planning experience. I like the fact that we're bringing people who are who have other experiences with other industries who are looking into this this industry with a different lens. Now, I cannot say that that's going to continue again on the product and engineering side that that may be different in the future, but I think there is I believe that there is value to be had there. Now, financial planner wakes up, they they get their coffee, they get to their desk, they log into their computer and they log into our system. Our system is web-based obviously, and the system essentially has a few things. It tells them what their day is going to look like. Who are they talking to today? Some basic information as reminders about who they're talking to and what their portfolio is. They can go into their portfolio in a, in a detailed way. But we also have management of tasks. The task management is these action items that we keep track of per customer so that you know what you need to do on a daily basis. So almost like Kanban, right? So we're, we're, in, we're implementing the Kanban-like methodology into a financial planner's world where you have the basic to-do doing blocked done and you can keep track of those per client. Now, when you go into each client's portfolio, there are... You know, everything is web-based, as I said, so there's a lot of data input that can that is done while the financial planner is on the phone or on a video call with the and even screen sharing with the with the client. And the data is input into their uh, their portfolio, let's call it. There's there's of course some data that is input by the client initially. And there's some data that is input by the financial planner. That spits out, part of it is the AI and machine learning spitting out some recommendations. It's more like a recommendation engine. And then it's up to the CFP to accept or not accept the the recommendations, which actually becomes a learning problem and our algorithms learn more from that. But part of it is is actually this, these inputs generating the outputs for the customers, right? Those actually, instead of doing paper-based records, we are, we're giving web-based platforms, plus we're giving PDFs to our customers. Our, our customers, some, some of our clients actually like to keep track of uh, documentation. Those are stored in our repository that we give them access to. That's through Box, actually. So... Of course, we didn't build that from scratch, but it's really interesting that there is this whole workflow that we go through that starts with the initial client input from a questionnaire to the intake process that we go through to the touch points that we have with with the clients on a recurring basis. So let's start to look at this from an engineering perspective. So we've talked a little bit about how the product is managed. Tell me about how product ideas and product concerns are translated into engineering decisions and how that has shaped your engineering stack today. So, great question. We have some, I have some really, really awesome team members here, my colleagues here, who are really pushing the baton on how do we think about product. Of course, we do the typical things of, you know, Scrum Agile and having a product roadmap with the quarterly planning for what are the things that we're trying to hit in this quarter and what are the features that we're building. So, you know, the, the, the typical that everybody follows, that's just best practice for engineering management. But we have, we're unique in the sense that my co-founders and I strongly believe that everybody's voice matters in the company. And that means that even our junior engineers, when they have ideas, they can talk to the CFPs about, hey, what about this? What do you think about it? What if we were to do this? Likewise with uh, talking to our CEO or me or whoever, right? The, the, we have this really, I, would, I don't want to call it a flat organization, but culturally it's close to flat, that every idea matters. Now, those ideas sometimes are good ideas, sometimes are bad ideas. The good ideas then get discussed with product. And product and engineering get together with the CFPs. I mean, these huddles happen multiple times a day 
to be honest with you. And we are talking about, hey, you know, if we were to add this to this interface, this would add me, this would give me this. And the engineering engineering gives their advice on, hey, here, here are the things that we can do. And then next thing you know, it's actually part of the product. Of course, it's there's a challenge of managing a product roadmap with a with the realistic deadlines and if we're adding something we have to remove something all of that stuff but it gets really exciting that the it's not about this you know really really long product roadmap we know what we're going to build in two years it's it's actually quite the opposite additionally we always of course we all want to hire 10x engineers i think we have been pretty lucky but also our process really has helped us a lot with getting people in here, our colleagues who are the 10x engineers, who are the 10x designers, who are the 10x CFPs. And the engineers that we have, I mean, a lot of my engineers actually love to do site projects. And these are the kind of people that, you know, really get to learn different technologies on their own and they can they can bring the fresh perspectives and they are the 10x engineers, right? Some of these engineers, you know, their site projects started becoming site projects for the company. Right. One of them goes home on a weekend and says, hey, I'm going to try this new machine learning algorithm with our test data and see if I can actually draw some interesting conclusions from this. Comes to work on Monday presenting it. Everybody's excited about it. Next thing you know, it's on the product roadmap. So that's the kind of culture that we like to cultivate. And the power of collaboration between engineering, design, product, and the CFPs here is the key. That's what's setting us aside. Now, as I understand, I think we were talking about this before the show, you are in the process of moving from your MVP to your scalable platform. Tell me about what the MVP was and what your big vision for the more scalable version of the software is. Sure. Well, it, an MVP starts organically, right? It, it grows organically. So for many reasons, we actually built our MVP in the first version was PHP with jQuery. Then we added React and it was a sort of a monolithic application. And for many purposes, that at the time made sense, right? We were trying to prove that this model is going to work and we have to get something out. Now we're in the process of building a scalable architecture. So what does a scalable architecture mean? We like the microservice-oriented architectures. We like React because of its component-based architecture. And we're, we're building a microservice-oriented architecture in Go Lang right now. So our platform backend is in Go. Our platform frontend is in React with Redux. And then on the infrastructure side, we're, of course, utilizing our cloud provider, which is AWS. We're utilizing services like the queues and notification systems and some of the NoSQL databases that they're using, they're providing that helps us go faster, right? So in, in my mind, in the recipe of a of a scalable cloud architecture, there is so much that actually you can utilize from AWS, from Google, from Microsoft, right? The, each of the cloud providers have their own versions of many things that we can utilize. But defining the recipe for what that cloud architecture in a scalable way needs to look like is interesting. And it wouldn't have made sense for us to build it that way initially because it was an ever-changing thing. It was growing very quickly and quite organically. So now, now that we have a recipe for what we are currently using, we are still managing our monolithic application while we're building this true scalable platform. And of course, there are some integrations that we have with external things because we're not going to do document management. So we're going to use Box. We're not going to do credit card management. We're going to use Stripe, right? So there are some external tools that we utilize with, but the core of the business logic lives with us. Right. I've talked to some different companies at this point about their increasing shift towards, quote, serverless. And serverless obviously means a lot of different things. It can mean functions as a service, like AWS Lambda. It can mean managed services, like DynamoDB. It can mean companies like Stripe, 
or like Box. I think Box is a great example. I've seen Box used in these kinds of applications where you have a lot of document management. You know, you can use it. Box is a great API for for document management. There's also things like like container instances where you can have long lived containers, or you can be managing your application on a, on a Kubernetes cluster. So that's the thing I'm kind of curious about because you said you're you're keeping the core application logic under your own control. And I'm curious, what is the deployment medium there? Because I think we're kind of in this curious time where people do have to manage some core application logic, whether it's legacy logic or it's greenfield logic, in a way that is not as easily manageable as these API services, you know, Box or whatever. So like managing your containers, managing your application, that's still going to be harder than managing these APIs. Maybe that's just the way things are, but I'm curious about what your strategy for deploying services and managing services is and what that deployment medium is, whether it's Lambda functions or container instances or Kubernetes. The answer is actually all of the above. (laughs) So we are fans of Lambda. Lambda makes sense for certain things, not for everything in my mind, because if you have a service that has... If I'm running an ML service, I'm not going to do that on a Lambda instance because the the economics of that is not going to make sense. So I'm going to put that in something like Kubernetes in a container that is a manageable container, right? I like the management perspective of those. Actually, one of the things, one of the cool things that we did is we hooked Kubernetes up with through Amazon EKS to our code deploy with Bitbucket pipelines. And through that, we actually, for every QA, every feature that we release for QA purposes, we spin up a new instance, new new pod. And that enables our product team, our CFPs, to test that one feature without having to wait for a release and test many different things at the same time. That just makes more sense for us. We like, we like Lambda. Some of our goal routines are going to Lambda. It makes sense for certain things and it doesn't make sense for certain things. So there's sort of a, and that's mostly based on the economics. And then from the database perspective, of course, some of that, some of the data that we have is very quite relational. Some of that is for any of the ML purposes, we go to non-relational. So using something like Dynamo makes sense because it is, it is part of the infrastructure that we're using from through our cloud provider where it's essentially a service. So my philosophy is that I want my team focused on the, the value that, that we have with the business logic that we're building as partly in Go routines, partly in React and the design, the interactions of the different of clients and CFPs with the system, but also the interactions of the different parts of the platform. I think when you're building a scalable platform, of course, you want to really understand each black box. If you're treating them as black box, you know, sometimes you run into issues with your document management system. For instance, if it has API limitations that you're hitting, not to throw anything, anybody under the bus, but, you know, I personally have run into problems with Dropbox API before because they had a limitation of 25,000 API calls in a month versus something like Box, where it, which, which gives me 50,000 API calls per day. So for a scalable exercise where I am doing document management and I'm using it as a service, I'm going to look at those volume metrics as based of as a basis for my cloud architecture exercise and decide which parts of it are the value adds and which parts of it are things that I can outsource. Indeed. So what's when you look at the spectrum of engineering challenges that you're working on, what's the hardest engineering problem you're facing today? I think as part of a growing startup, it is the hardest problem is actually deciding when you're going from your MVP, from your monolithic application to this to a cloud-based, scalable, microservices-oriented architecture. If I am a startup with five people, I, I'm likely not going to build the Ferrari that I may need in the future because that doesn't make any sense, right? I'm going to focus on my MVP. How do you identify when you go from when you need to go from the MVP to your eventual platform? I think that's the hardest decision to make. It's really easy to keep adding stuff to your MVP, keep adding features to your MVP, and 
and it grows organically and that's great, but then you end up having to rebuild the whole stack from scratch. So I think, you know, there are some lessons learned, of course, and there are some things that, of course, we could have done better, like implementing an API from the, uh, the RESTful API from the beginning, rather than having this tight coupling between our front end and back end that would have, that could have saved us time. Fine, we did it. We did it in a good time where it actually helped us define it for our cloud architecture. But I think it's from a CTO perspective, from anybody, any tech leadership perspective. I think it's of utmost importance to know that hey, I may be building an MVP now, but I need to have the maturity to know that I may have to throw this away and build the build the scalable architecture. So at Facet Wealth. You don't actually control the money, right? Like the money is in a Schwab account or it's in whatever account that the person Mm -hmm. wants. Is that right? Yeah, we use uh, low-cost ETFs for our clients. Okay. Do you plan to kind of move those assets into some sort of... I mean, how full stack do you want to go in terms of the money management? Because it seems like if you can move down the stack into management of the actual financial assets you can make a lot of money, a lot more money than you're making today. Yeah, the the asset management and investment vehicles that we use for our clients, those are, that's not the main focus of this company. The main focus is financial planning, giving the advice, helping people realize their financial goals. It's sort of an added bonus almost that we do the wealth management perspective. Now, we will know soon if more of our clients actually demand that and there are more systems that we should be working with. Of course, we have more invest, more integrations that we would have to do with different investment vehicles such that we can still manage them through our platform. Is it a technical challenge? Not really because, you know, it's, it's certainly doable. I think it's more of a focus. Our focus is certainly on heavier on the financial plan. And even if we were to manage more and more assets, it's part of this flat fee-based service. It is not an additional fee that we would do for asset management. So as we begin to wrap up, I'd just like to take a higher level view. We're in this time of rapid financial turbulence in the sense that there's a lot of financial technology that we've been covering in, in various various forms, certainly the crypto side of things, as comprehensively as we can. One of the things that looking at crypto has made me realize is how much of a house of cards the entire financial system is. And I mean, many aspects of our lives are houses of cards, and it's just like every bubbles are everywhere. But crypto really reveals is a better way of managing the ledgers of our accounts it's it's just a it's a lower level refactoring of how our accounts are managed and the the degree to which the value that exists in the economy in different places can be scrutinized and so we have these these kind of competing financial systems emerging on the crypto side of things we have a a system where we can understand how much value is being represented within the crypto economy and then two, this house of cards style, perhaps overinflated, but definitely opaque traditional financial system. And it seems like there's a tension there. And and that tension is, you know, in the near term, we're going to see, okay, yeah, you know, you add crypto to your to your retirement balance and, and that's great. So you're offsetting it or crypto is a replacement for gold in terms of a long-term durable asset. And, and that's great. But over time, it seems like there's a tension there between those two types of assets. Do you see a, a tension between the, the crypto asset category and the conventional asset category? So yes, and I think that's going to come in the future because, well, first of all, blockchain is cool, right? Blockchain is very, very cool and it's stuff that we want to we do, cons- we would consider using as a technology. Cryptocurrency themselves, cr- cryptocurrency itself is a more complicated question. You, but you can't, you can't have a blockchain without cryptocurrency. Yeah. So the question is that it's actually more important that the SEC, we're an SEC regulated firm, right? We, we have fiduciary responsibilities by law 
to deliver advice that's in the best interest of the client. And the SEC is not, but because of the SEC regulations, we cannot give advice to people on anything related to cryptocurrency currently. I see. So we cannot give advice to somebody saying you should you should invest in Bitcoin. Like that is at this point not allowed. Is there going to be a future future in which we can? Perhaps. But I think we have to be extremely careful about the 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 compliance and legal requirements of what sort of advice is acceptable to give. Fair enough. Now, you know, my whole issue with the financial planning industry and all my interactions with it has been that ultimately the the data that we have is such a short time horizon. So like how much data about the stock market do we have? I mean, 100 years, 150 years, and that's how many cycles have we gone through? Maybe like 25 or 30 or 50 cycles, or you could argue we're going, we go through a cycle on a daily basis or a minute basis, you know. In any case, the problem with financial planning is the world of finance is, in many cases, guided by like tail events, tail risk, and you can have a single event for which there is no precedent wipe you out if you're not properly hedged. And, you know, in my conversations with financial planners, I would be like, okay, so you're trying to map out this financial plan for me on a 30-year time horizon. What's your protection against against black swans? You know, like, how do you think about black swans? And they'll be like, well, those happen very rarely. Well, okay, you know, that's, first of all, that's based off of a 150-year data set, which is really small. So you can't even really say that with much confidence. You know, second of all, the financial world is always changing. So it's almost like Poisson process, or I think I think that's the right term, where it's just like you can't actually predict what the probability of this black swan is. You just know that they happen sometimes. It just like, it felt so religious to me and so misguided. And it's, I don't have a good solution to this other than like keeping everything in cash or, or something, but even that's a bad solution. <laughs> Well, actually, the answer is diversifying your portfolio, right? Not not putting all your eggs in a basket. Figuring out with your financial planner, what is the risk portfolio that you feel comfortable with? Because some people actually on the opposite end of the spectrum and they say, you know what? I want to make a lot of money in the short term and I'm willing to take a lot of risks. So that's exactly why you need to actually talk to a person that would understand your perspective in the sense of what are your short-term, long-term goals, and provided we have to understand that there are external factors. And you can imagine that actually even your, let me give you a completely different example. When you change a job and when you, when you start a new job and now you, your income has changed, or let's say you had a kid, you have a new kid, great, congratulations, and now your financial goals probably have changed, right? <laughs> so... When is a good time to talk to a financial planner comes up as a good question. And how do we actually mine external data to help us make the decisions on when our financial planners should be initiating a discussion if the client doesn't reach out to us? That's one. Number two is what I was mentioning, which is how do you prepare for those black swans? How do you actually, and our our financial planners can speak to this much better than I can. I'm just a computer scientist, but the diversification of portfolios is really what's geared towards helping people get ready for any such events that we have no control over and we have no knowledge over. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Gorkum, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been really good talking to you. Thank you so much. And... Really appreciated it and really enjoyed the conversation. Wow.